0: This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. Listen, before we begin, I have a confession I need to make with you. Um, I'm um, a little bit discouraged, quite a bit convicted. You know, when, you, when you're a Baptist and you go to seminary and a Baptist seminary and you grow up in Baptist churches, uh, you have a tendency of viewing life one way and viewing church one way and pretty much church becomes not really a worship center because we really don't know what that means. We know what singing is and we know what kinda of getting caught up sometimes in the in the music of the lyrics, but they become more of teaching centers that we come and we hear, we sing, kinda of like a prelude, and then we we have a a Bible study time, and and maybe that affirms some truth that we didn't know or or teaches something new. We feel good about that, like we've gained some knowledge, and, and then we leave, and by and large, and I'm painting with a very broad brush here, by and large, our lives don't change. We've learned something new, but we kept it captive up in our head and we haven't let it filter down into our soul. And even in the worship singing time, there's a certain way that we do that. We do it reserved. We do it uh, with not much fanfare. If somebody in our congregation seems a little more animated with the singing than maybe we are, we feel uncomfortable because there's a certain there's a certain mode that we've all kind of accepted over the years that this is how things are done in a Baptist church, in a Methodist church, in a Presbyterian church, in a Lutheran church, an Episcopal church, and you know, in and just a, a normal kind of church. And and then of course you've got the, the pendulum swings on the other side to more of the charismatic persuasion, a church of God or assembly of God or something of that nature. And they're very lively with their with their with their music, and the music goes on for a long time. But if you were to again painting with a broad brush they're pretty weak on their doctrine. The the message isn't the focal point, the the expounding of God, it's more the experience. We on the other hand swing it way down to the other end where the message becomes more the focal point and the experience is less than that. And I'm wondering if any of this pleases the Lord. Any of this. It, It bothers me immensely that week after week after week we can proclaim the word of God and people can still live in sin and not be convicted. I mean, this is the, I go home and I go, what, what, what is the deal here? Is there, is there not enough gospel? Is there not enough word? I've come to the conclusion that the word of God does not change lives. Listen to me carefully. It does not. It is the power behind the word of God that changes lives. A lost person, a committed atheist can memorize scripture and still be lost. There's nothing magic about giving an incantation of reciting some scripture over somebody. It's the power behind the word of God that changes lives. When you and I were lost... First Corinthians says that the cross of Christ and all that the Bible talks about the cross of Christ was moronic. It was foolishness to us until something changed inside of us. And then all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit came to dwell within us, when we got saved, now all of a sudden, what became, what was one time moronic to us or foolishness or ridiculous became power and life in our, in us. And it's the power of that message. You know, um, When you go to seminary um, or you look at church growth models, what they do is they find a church in the past who is growing, and we say, we want to be like that church, so what we need to do is do the things which they are doing. We're living in the age of the franchised congregations, where congregations are to grow really big and you have to franchise them out into separate locations and all get the pastor piped in on some video deal, and, and for some reason that's acceptable. Um guys like, this started out, guys like um, Rick Warren and people of that nature kind of popularized how to make your church grow. You go around in the community and you ask a couple questions, and the questions are simple. If we were to create a church in which you would come, what would you want to have happen in that church? Well, I want a really cool nursery. I want music that's Relative and and kind of contemporary. I want messages that affirm me. I don't want to hear about blood or atonement or hell or anything like that. Great, we'll create the church and they'll come. And this, my entire ministry years, my, the whole generation I belong to has been affected by that. And then the the mantle of the guru who talks about church growth gets passed from one pastor to another. First it was Bill Hybels, and then it was was uh, Rick Warren, and now it's Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley down at North Point and has these satellite churches all over the place, and he's beginning now this new nationwide conference and crusade to teach pastors how to create churches to attract lost people. Because if your church doesn't attract lost people, if your church is not the kind of church that a lost person feels comfortable in coming, then you're failing as a pastor. And I'm telling you, Hundreds of thousands of churches are going to turn in that direction even more so than they are. But the reality is church is not for lost people. Do you realize that? It's not at all, period. Church is a gathering of the saints. It's a gathering of us as believers in Christ who are worshiping a God a lost person is immune to. And so if I'm to create a church to make a lost person comfortable in their sin with the hope that somehow they'll come to Christ because of our music or our lights or our lives or our affirming messages, we're missing the point of church. Church is for us to come together and share each other's burdens and and glory and how God does. And there's there's a manifestation or an expression of the Holy Spirit that takes place in church that... A lost person is lost to. Make sense? I'm going to give you, again, where we've been so that you'll kind of get a a gathering on this. Um, We started out with the Sermon on the Mount, talking about what life is like in the kingdom of God, when Jesus is laying out reality in His kingdom. From that, we moved on to spiritual gifts. What does that mean about life in his kingdom? And I hope you're at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because I want to highlight just a few verses that we went through over and over and over again in great detail in October and November of this year. It begins with verse number four. I talked a little bit about this last week. There are diversities of gifts. There are differences of ministries. There are diversities of activities. But the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God who works all of these things all in all. There's, there's different manifestations of the Spirit, but the Lord wants us to know they're the same Spirit that does this. We have the Holy Spirit, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, we have God the Father We're all tied up in here. And then verse 7 is the one that just. I haven't been able to get off it this entire year. Last year, for some reason, it was the verse in Colossians where it talked about the fact that we are complete in Him. And the implications of that are just profound. But here, the Paul, Holy Spirit through Paul is talking about what these spiritual gifts mean. And he says, but the manifestation of the spirit and that manifestation means the way he expresses himself, the way he reveals himself to make himself known or observable to everybody. The way the Holy Spirit reveals himself today is through these gifts that are manifested in Christians, usually within a church setting. It says, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one and I know we went over this in detail, that means every single one or a one separate from other people. It's given to me and it's given to you for the profit of all. For the benefit of, of, of the contribution to the betterment of every single one of us. We all have been given spiritual gifts, each one of us, not for our own gratification, not for our own attention, which is what some of the abuses in Certain persuasions take place that make other people like us fearful of all that. But it's for the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone for the profit of all. Well, what are these manifestations of the Spirit? And he begins listing those and watch how it starts. For one is given to another and then another and then another and then another and another and another and another, and another and another. You get the point that these gifts are distributed to who he wants within the body of Christ, to another to another, not just one, not just the pastor, not just the biggest tither, not just the elder board, not just the people who dress better or look better or are more verbose when it comes to verbal communication He goes, but to every single one to another, to another, to another are given certain gifts. To one is given the word of wisdom. We defined all of these last year. To another, the word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. All of these gifts are a manifestation of the Holy Spirit given for the benefit of someone else, the benefit of each other in the church. But who empowers all those gifts? Again, through the Spirit, or through the same Spirit. Not a different Spirit, but the same Spirit, or by the same Spirit, or again, by the same Spirit, and then to sum it all up, instead of doing this repetitively for gifts 5 through 9, uh, the Holy Spirit just gives us this sentence. The very next verse, but one in the same Spirit, in other words, it's the same Spirit who does all of us. one of the same Spirit works. This is the word in which we get energy from. It means to be active and effective and operating, to put forth power. There's something taking place here. There's a supernatural explanation and and expression of the Holy Spirit. But the same Spirit works what? All. That word means in the Greek, it's totally inclusive. It means each, every, the whole, in totality without exception. All these things. These things are referring back to the gifts, not just some of the gifts, but all of the gifts. The same Spirit works, is active, is operating, is putting forth power in every one of these gifts. And how He does that is by distributing to each one. And distributing means dividing or literally to set up boundaries. This is your gift. And this is your gift. And this is your gift. And the idea is the fact is when we all come together, we're one complete man in Christ because we all have a gift or gifts or a mixing of gifts that He sets out himself. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one, every single one without exception. But in this verse, the Holy Spirit throws in the word individually. And this word doesn't mean in the Greek what we think it means in the English. Individually means, oh, okay, it's my individual gift. Got it. I got my gift. But the implication of this Greek word is the fact that it's your own property. It's something that you own, it's your own possession. It denotes private ownership. This is a gift that God has given to me and given to you. And I've got this gift that's entrusted to me to be able to have him exercise for the benefit of others, even if it makes me feel uncomfortable. And how did I get that gift? because it was given to me by the Holy Spirit as He wills or as He desires. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. You understood the Sermon on the Mount that moved over into spiritual gifts, and then we talked about the, the big theological question that non-charismatics always have of whether all these gifts have stopped or whether they actually continue. And, and I showed you that there's no way you can ever read the scripture and come up with the idea that all these gifts stopped, or part of these gifts stopped, unless you make deductions that aren't found in scripture, usually based on our own personal experience, our own personal way of viewing things. And then we started looking at how these gifts were manifest in the early church. And for the past couple months we've been doing a, a survey of the book of Acts, watching how God you did this miracle and that miracle and this miracle, how He actually you know, did a miracle and created something out of nothing, or how He used providence to bring about His will. Then we talked last week about signs of the kingdom. If we're actually in the kingdom, which the Scripture says that are, what does Jesus say, or what does the Scripture say are signs of the kingdom, and those signs of the kingdom happen to be, as we talked about last week, a utilization of these gifts. The same spiritual gifts that we have are the same gifts that he said are signs in the kingdom, knowing that you're in God's kingdom. Which brings us today to this point. What about the Holy Spirit in our church? Or worse than that, how about the Holy Spirit in my life or your life? Because the church can't do anything compositely unless we do it individually. You know, the church isn't an entity of itself. The church is made up of many members who all come together into one body. And so when the members of the body of Christ come together and they're acting in a certain way, then it would mean that the church as an entity or a totality would act the same way. If the members of the body are not acting the same way or believe one way, then the church, by definition, believes that way too. It's not like we can make a decision for the church and it not affects the individual. It's the individual decision that determine the direction the church goes. Because the church, again, in our culture, we're a separate 501c3 entity. But the fact is, in the kingdom of God, the church is us. It's not this building. It's not not this barn. It's Not a name that we have or some sort of bylaws. It's us. It's individually. How are we going to respond to the kingdom of God? And when we come together, the church that's made up of those people coming together will respond exactly the same way. Well, here's where where it gets really personal. In anything worth having, there's a price to pay. And when there's a price to pay, there's a cost to pay. And Jesus continually talked about that when He talked about counting the cost when it comes to following Him and being His disciples. In Luke 14, for example, He says this, Now great multitudes went with Him. I can see them all coming to Him and because He's the guy that's feeding them and He's the guy working on the miracles and He's the hottest thing in town. Then He turns around to them and says, Listen, you need to understand what it means to follow Me. So He lays out for them what life in the kingdom is about. And He says to this, If anyone comes to Me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sister, yes, his own life also. He cannot be my disciples. Now this is told from a male perspective. You know, a man hate his father and mother and his wife, his spouse, and his own children, and his brothers and sisters, and worse than that, even his own life. He cannot be my disciples. What do you mean? hate. Well, it's loving you more than loving me. So whoever does not bear his cross, his visible instrument of excruciating death, he cannot be my disciple, which means if you place anything, even these heartfelt relationships, if you place anything greater than your devotion to Christ, he says that the standard is a whole lot higher than we can imagine. It's the wide road and the narrow path. And if you look at the Greek of that word, you know, narrow gate, it's really like a turnstile where you can walk through alone and carry nothing with you. Continuing, for which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? I mean, it's just what we do. Whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid a foundation, he's not able to finish it. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We start out in the Christian life thinking, oh, this is great. I get heaven. I get My prayers answered. I I get to go to church by with moral people, a whole lot moral than the guys I work with or are on a ball team with, and I get to I get to feel good about people will pray for me, and I mean it's just it's great. And then we understand the cost of that, and do we hang with it? Do we want to be holy, or do just do we want God to just continually bless us with His blessings? Continue, Or what king, giving examples that they understood, going to make war against another does not sit down first and consider, count the cost, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. If I don't think I can win this battle, then I'm going to sue for peace. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Okay, all right, Lord, what are you saying? Those are two examples. I mean, I've got it. What kind of person decides to build a house and first doesn't want to make sure he's got enough materials to finish it? Otherwise, he's got it framed in and it rains and it's ruined. I mean, nobody does that. So what are you saying, Lord? So likewise, he says, whoever of you does not forsake all he has cannot be my disciple. And then he goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. We've already read this in Matthew chapter 5. Salt is good, but if it has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. And every time Christ gives us a profound teaching with spiritual implications that are life-altering, he always puts this little cryptic phrase at the bottom, he who has ears, let him hear. Is this for you? If this is for you, you need to hear, because this is a message that changes everything. There's a cost that, that has to be paid. There's a, there's a cost for an intimacy with Christ. Now look, most of us have come to church for years and years and years, decades, and we enjoy church. It's a cool thing to do. We come and we hear a message and we meet with some friends and we sing some songs and we have a meal together and our friends become friends of church. If I have a problem with my car, I'll call somebody in church. We'll get together and take vacations together. That's wonderful. That's, that's what a family does. But, but it's deeper than that. It's, it's bigger than that. I mean, church should be a place where our lives are changed and our lives are want to be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and we have a deep desire to grow deep, deep in our intimacy with him. And what happens to most Christians, what's happened to me in my life is you reach a certain level and you're satisfied and you know, I'm okay. You know, I feel good when it comes to the things of the Lord, and this is great, but at this level of spiritual maturity, I'm still able to do the things I want to do. I still have my job, and my Christianity can't affect my job too much because I'll lose my job, and at at my age, I can't really get another job, and so I'm just going to be satisfied where I'm at right now. And I'm able to watch what I want on television. I'm being able to have the friends that I want, and I've, I've moved from where I used to be to where I feel comfortable in my spiritual life now. But those people who are out here, those people who are going for deeper intimacy with the Lord, it costs too much. It's too painful. It's too much time. It's too much devotion. It's saying too much no to the flesh. And so I'm okay right where I'm at. I'm I'm okay. And we stagnate. And the church is full of stagnated people. Man, I've been stagnated before in my spiritual life, and, and I hate it. I mean, it's okay for a season. I mean, you've been there; you know what it's like. I feel pretty good. You know, I was I was like a I was like a seventy, and now I'm up to about an eighty-three. And I feel great. I feel thirteen points higher than I was, and I can just rest here and pretend like it's a hundred. It's not. If you ever reach a hundred, you're going to find out that when they reboot the screen, that you're really not at 100, you're really at 20. And it's a whole other level. It's just moving deeper and deeper in him. And we admire people who have done that, but we're intimidated by them, and we'd really rather not hang around them. And, and when somebody else is more in love with Jesus than we are, we have a tendency, if we don't say it verbally, we think about it, about being a fanatic. And God forbid we're fanatics, because, by the way, you know what a definition of fanatic is, Right? Someone who loves Jesus more than you. And we don't want to be that way. So we're, so we're I, got, I got responsibilities. I got things I got to do. I can't be all about Jesus. Why? Because it will cost me dearly. Yes, it will cost you dearly with everything you're going to leave behind when you die anyway. Isn't that amazing? All right, so if I want to, if I want a deeper relationship with Christ. If I want to experience the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in me, what do I need? We're going to look at two things today. We're going to we're going to look at what we need in order for that to happen, and then we're going to I'm going to be honest with you and tell you what you can expect, positive and the negative. Let's look at the first one. What we need. And the first thing we need, I can't give you. The first thing you need is a desire. It has to come from a desire. And and The word desire is really misleading in the English. Because when I think about desire, it's almost like a wish, like a pipe dream. Oh, I... I don't know. What do you want to be when you grow up, Steve? Oh, I desire to be a doctor, or a lawyer, or an astronaut, or you know. Okay, I mean, we're never going to put any effort behind that. There's just a, a pipe dream. And, and so, oh, a desire, a desire like, yeah, I want to be closer to the Lord, and yeah, I want, I want Jesus to speak to me every day, and oh, yeah, I want to, I want God to to let me bear a whole bunch of fruit. I want to abide in Him. That's my desire. It's not what the word means in English or Greek at all. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians fourteen one, which is the verse I had up here, when we first began, told us to pursue love, to pursue agape, and desire spiritual gifts. Desire spiritual. Oh yeah, I desire spiritual gifts. That'd be a good thing if it was given to me and cost me nothing. It's not what the word means. The word means to burn with zeal. It means to be heated or to boil with envy, to lust or to covet. It's the it's the the object of that lust and that covet, if it, was, if it was sin or somebody else's wife or money, we would say that this guy is beyond committed to doing evil. But the, the content or the context of this, or the object of this is called spiritual gifts. It means you're just eat up with wanting spiritual gifts. I want them so bad. That's what Paul is saying. It's not desire. I have this, I'm burning with zeal. I can't think of anything else. I'm willing to sacrifice all I have for all Christ has. The kingdom parables are all like that. Man goes out and finds a treasure hidden in a field. I want it. Well. How bad? I'm going to sell everything I have to possess that pl- treasure. A man, kingdom of heaven, is like a man who goes out and finds a pearl of great price. I will sell everything I have for that pearl. There's no hedged bet here. It's all or nothing. That's what the word means, to, to pursue love, to chase after love but to desire with a a, a burning zeal, just just to boil with envy. I want it, God, I want it. Please, I want it. I want more of you more than anything. And your prayer life is tied up with that. The first thing it means is desire. Now, you you either have it or you don't. You either want it or you don't. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of sitting on the bench I'm tired of watching the game from the stands. I'm tired of reading in the scripture about God doing great things through people and wondering why he doesn't do them through me. Or I'm reading these great missionary books or pastors of old and, you know, D.L. Moody and all those kind of people that God viewed, did incredible things through their life and why isn't he doing it to me? Because they have a desire. They're willing to sacrifice everything. They're, they're all in, cashed in their chips. Word, call. But me, and maybe many of you, nah, I'll give you a little, but I have to have the rest for my stuff. This is my important stuff. This is my job and my house and my kids and, and all the stuff that I want to do. And, and that's kind of important too, God. And that's where my passion is, and that's where my love is. And, and I'll give I want you to bless what I want versus us jumping into the deep end of the pool. And giving our lives to what He wants. Desire. Pray, God, give me a desire for all that you are. The second thing that you have to have is a vibrant prayer life. Because you're building a relationship with the deity. You're building a relationship with the creator of the universe. It's not that we go to Him with you know, flowery phrases that somehow gets His attention that we're building a a trust relationship with Him better than you have with your children, better than you have with your spouse, better than you have with your parents. I mean, God is God. He's everything. He's, He's beyond comprehension. And He actually wants us to talk to Him so He can talk back to us. Can you imagine how incredible that is? It's like me wanting to have a relationship with a with a germ on the bottom of an ant's foot in the mud. And and something as worthless as that, being able to commune with something far more advanced. Only God is off the scale. We have that privilege and that right and that blessing because of what Christ has done for us. And it, it demands a vibrant prayer life. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and how they pray with flowery words, hoping that for some reason they'll be heard by God. And he says, don't be like them. Don't be like them in your prayer life. Why? Because your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Well, what kind of God already knows what I need and yet he requires me to ask? Well, why would he do that? It's really simple because he loves to be pursued. You love to be pursued. If you're a woman. All of a sudden, the man that you ended up marrying took an interest in you and pursued you and called you on the phone and wanted to take you out on a date, take you out to dinner, dressed up real nice and wanted to make sure I opened up your car door. Remember how it used to be opened up your car door and and all that kind of stuff felt good, felt good to be loved, felt good to be pursued, felt good to have somebody else wanting to have a relationship with me. And God's exactly the same way. That's why even though he knows what we need and he could just snap his finger or think the thought and we'd have all that, instead he likes to be pursued. He likes us to ask him. Because when we ask him and he grants it to us, then we realize that we can trust him and there's a prayer life here and we can praise him for how good he is. You have to have a vibrant prayer life. Have to. And here's the hard one he'd be willing to fast. Can't tell you how many scriptures deal with that. We don't like it because it means we can't eat because we we don't understand what fasting is all about. I mean Jesus never commanded us to fast. He said, "He said, you know, you're going to fast on Tuesdays and Fridays. He never said that. But he assumed we would. That's why every time he talked about how we're supposed to fast, don't put a sad countenance on your face, but you know, put a smile on your face so nobody will know you're fasting and all that kind of stuff. He always used when. When you fast, do it this way. When you fast. Not if you fast. It was assumed you would. This is what, what I want you to do. And, and we always think that fasting means doing without. Oh, I have to to quit eating. I love to eat. I'll just get all shaky like this. And and God forbid we ever get shaky, right? And you get all shaky like this and and it's going to be really terrible. But we don't understand that fasting is not doing without. Fasting is feasting on Him. It's like taking something and saying, you know what? I would rather have this than this. It's like a substitute. I I remember in John chapter 4, Jesus is at the well with the Samaritan woman. And she comes and and he leads her to Christ. Go tell your husband, I don't have a husband. No, oh, and I'm, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. And all of a sudden he communicates to her, I who am speaking to you am he. And she runs into the town to tell everybody about who Jesus was. And the whole town comes back. The disciples show up with their sack lunches. And they ask have you already eaten? No, oh, I have food that you don't even know about. I'm feasting on being in the center of my Father's will. That's what fasting is. Fasting is when I give something up for something better. Historically, it's been food. But it can be anything in your life that you want to fast. It can be whatever takes your time away from Christ. Fasting is never denying yourself, but it is satisfying yourself in Him. If you've ever fasted, I can always tell when someone's on a spiritual fast or on a physical fast. Fast is not Fasting is not for dieting. Um, I can always tell because when somebody's fasting and I say, hey, how you doing? There's a smile on their face. There's a sparkle in their eye, even though they haven't eaten in three days. And they're going like, oh, God, God is so good. And they're sharing something that He revealed to them. He showed them in Scripture. And we just kind of rejoice in that. Or Hey, how you doing? Oh, man, I'm like starving to death. And my backbone is being gnawed on. Imagine I'm so weak, I can't take it. And stop, stop. This is not a spiritual fast. This is morphed over into some sort of diet, some sort of law that you're a stop. You know, it's, it's not like that. It's, I mean, I've been on spiritual fast and I've been on physical fast. And it is unbelievable what God will do for you and show you when you just commit a small sacrifice to him. Let me give you just a, this comes from Sam Storms. It's not mine. But let me just give you a couple of, couple points about fasting. One, fasting always has to be motivated by a deep desire. Always. It's not something we impose upon somebody else through the law. It has to be a desire. God, I, I want a deeper relationship with you. I want to do it like Jesus did. Kind of amazing that Jesus began his ministry by fasting. Why didn't he begin it by just praising God in the temple for 40 days, or memorizing Scripture, or preaching next to John? He didn't. It was by fasting. There's a reason for that. Two, fasting is not something you do for God. I'm going to fast for just for you, God. It's a sacrifice to you. No, but it's an appeal to God in grace that, God, give me your power. Do something in me. Changed me by this time where I'm devoting it totally to you. Three, Fasting is not a statement that food or other things are bad. It's just a statement that something else is better. Better by comparison is better. Four, fasting should be motivated by the desire not to lose weight, not to grow spiritual so everybody can see it, but simply to glorify God. Five, fasting opens up our spiritual ears. This is so true. To discern God's voice and synthesizes our heart to enjoy God's presence in a way in my life nothing else has. Nothing else ever has. And number six, you're under spiritual attack. Fasting is a powerful weapon, a powerful weapon, spiritual warfare. It's something that we it's something that we surrender ourselves to Him trade off so we get something better. And I don't know why God chose fasting, but that's His call, not mine. I'd have chose something else. Probably not exercise, but I would have chose something else. But He chose fasting. Well, you must have what you can expect. And let me begin with the negative first. If you decide... You know, I want this. I want this. I I see it in other people. I, I know it's true. I have a hunger in my heart. I have a desire. God, I want this. I want to put it number one on my priority list. Here's what you can expect to happen. And I'll begin with the negative first. You need to understand there's a difference between men and women. Huge difference. And if you're a man, there's some admonitions I'm going to give you. And if you're a woman, there's some warnings I'm going to give you. Um, Men do not like to be eclipsed spiritually by their wives. They don't. Men have a tendency of falling into a rut... I've I got my life here. I've got all these little boxes. I'm taking care of. I got my work box. I got my lawn at home box. I got my box of the stuff I want to do. I got my friend box, my vacation box, my hunting buddy box. I got my Jesus box. I got my you know entertainment. I got all these boxes, and I'm pretty busy just managing all these because I define myself as a human being not by my Jesus box. I define myself by these other boxes. I'm this guy to my hunting buddies. I'm this guy to my friends. I'm this guy at work, and I get my of boys and my feel goods, this is how most men are, not by my abiding in Christ, but how much I can do here to get the praise and adulation of men uh, of others. that's what we want. That's why when when God put a man and woman together, he told a man that he's to love his wife as Christ loves the church because women, women need love, but it never said the woman is to love the husband. You ever find that kind of strange? It's implied but it's never commanded. What she's to do is revere him and honor him and submit to him because that's how a man understands love. That's how it's in the life of the workplace. And it's how it is here. So you've got a man who's got all these other things. And if I want to be really big in my Jesus box, I'm going to have to give up one of these. And men don't like to do that. I don't like to do that. We don't. Because we're too busy. we got too many responsibilities. We're defined by things other than this. So I'm going to reach a plateau and I'm going to be okay here. And then my wife all of a sudden starts getting really spiritual. My wife isn't my co in apathy anymore. My wife is beginning to excel in the Lord. And what I should do Because I should encourage her and strengthen her, and yes, you go girl, hallelujah, but instead, I feel intimidated. I feel like she's experiencing something I should experience, she should be experiencing, but I'm not willing to put the time in, and there's this natural tendency for men to drag their wives back down into an area where they feel comfortable with. If you're a wife, and you're having this spiritual zeal, You may find the greatest form of persecution and misunderstanding and rejection that you're going to have will be in your own family. Your own family with your husband and with your your kids and with your friends. But our allegiance can't be to temporal relationships. Our allegiance has to be to Christ. Know what I mean? How it should be is this, if a man is the one who's spiritually excelling, I've never known, and I'm sure it happens, this is another broad brush, I personally have never known a wife who has been intimidated by that and tried to drag her husband down. Instead, she's like, yes, he's a better husband and he's in love with the Lord, and I'm so excited to be married to him because I want to follow a man like that even though he's way beyond where I'm supposed to be, which you're supposed to be, men, if you're the spiritual leader of your house. You can't lead where you haven't been. Know what I mean? Women, on the other hand, are far more open to deep relationships, and they're open to personal relationships, and they're open to intimacy with the Lord that, that many of us men feel uncomfortable with. I mean, we don't even like deep relationships with each other. A man will have maybe three close friends his whole life. A woman has tons, tons. You know, we, we keep men at arm's distance because, you know, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? Pretty good. Hey, it's great. Let's go do something together that we don't really talk about personal stuff. <laughs> We're at a table with a whole bunch of men and women. lady stands up and goes, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Anyone want to go with me? All the women <laughs> you know. Try a guy doing that. Hey, I'm going to the bathroom. You want to come with me? No. You know? No. I mean, what, what's wrong with you? Uh, men and women go on a retreat. And so the women go, hey, there's eight of us. We'll just get one hotel room and we'll sleep four to a bed. And they're okay with that. Men, we're going to get my own room. Or I ain't going. I mean, is that not true? I mean, I just, I'm okay. I mean, that's how I am. I, you know, Tom, when we moved Tom and Jeannie down there. Uh, Karen goes, Yeah, they said we can stay with them. And I was thinking, in their camper, we're getting a hotel room. I don't want, I don't, no, I don't want to do that. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's just how men are. And men have been hurt probably a lot more than women have. Men, men go out in the workplace and they get betrayed and they get hurt and their friends turn out not to be their friends. And, and I know this happens to ladies also, but I know it happens to men a lot out there and they get disappointed and crushed. And so we kind of learned to be islands among ourselves. And so therefore, it kind of works the same way in the spiritual life. If I asked for, if I, if I asked, hey, listen, we're having a, a prayer meeting, and I really need some of you guys to come and pray. We're going to pray for about two hours. Can you come on Thursday? I would have 80% ladies' hands come up. Not men, women. If I said, hey, we're having a work day on Saturday, all the men, I'll do that. You know, I'll work and sweat. But as far as doing spiritual stuff, we feel uncomfortable doing that. It's something we've got to get through. We're supposed to be the leaders here. What you can expect, if you decide to desire a deeper relationship with Him, you can expect persecution, a misunderstanding, rejection, and you can expect an increased satanic attack. It will come. That bullseye on your chest will get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's okay. Like, bring it on, because I am hidden in Christ. It's a whole lot better than living how we live now. Remember the verse. If anyone comes after me, he does not hate his father or mother, wife or children, brothers or sisters. He has even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Who does not bear his cross and come after me. cannot be my disciple. You and I as men, if we want to embrace a deeper intimacy with the Lord, it's going to move us into places where we're going to have to die to ourselves and let Christ take us places that, that we can't even imagine. Got to be willing to do that. It has to be a desire. Now on the positive side, let me tell you what you can expect. Just lay it out for you. You can expect literally a life of high points or mountaintop experiences. Every one of us have had those in our life. Oh, yeah, I remember I remember. I was in the woods one day, and it was just me and, you know, the, the squirrels and the birds. And I just felt God's presence, and it was, it was incredible. It was the closest I ever was to the Lord. When did that happen? 2006 in November. That's a mountaintop experience. And so we spend the rest of the time in the valley. Well, what would it be like if we had boom and boom and boom and boom, and then pretty much all of a sudden they weren't really mountaintop experiences anymore, but it was the normal Christian life for a believer. Do you believe that's possible? It is. There are scores and scores and scores of people who've had that life before us, hundreds that have written about it. And we can have it too if we're willing to pay the price to count the cost. Number two, you will have unbelievable intimacy with the Lord. I don't know about you, but um, when I listen to women who really know Christ pray, there's a childlike innocence about their prayers. It's like they're talking to a father, a daddy, who they truly love. Truly love. It's like it's aweing. When I listen to men pray, even in my own prayer life, It's almost like I'm approaching a dignitary or I'm approaching an authority figure. Because I'm a man and I have authority and so I'm approaching a man who has greater authority. And so there's, there's a less intimacy, there's less daddy and less you know, let me tell you what's going It's more like a business transaction. I'm honoring you and telling you who you are. I'm, I'm laying out my needs for you. I'm asking you to meet those needs. I'm asking for my marching orders and my instructions. And I'll report back to you tomorrow and let you know how well I've done with what you have entrusted to me to do because I'm a man. And, I, and there's, a, there's a difference here. There's a, I don't know if it's our culture, our personalities, or the way God made us. Women embrace intimacy. Men don't. We have a tendency of being intimate with just a few people, like our wives, even then we probably hide things from them and maybe our kids and maybe one or two other people that you can really trust. Women, they're intimate with a lot of people. Have these long conversations for hours on the phone. Man he wants to wants to, you know, lay his list down, drop his bombs, fly back to England. You ever notice that in a phone conversation, six minutes? Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. How about you? How's your day going? Really great. How about yours? Let's just get on to it. What'd you call me for? Well, I just, you know, I have this. Here's my answer. Let's. Okay, we'll have a closing salutation. Phone call's over. Woman, was oh, that not true? <laughs> woman, woman, how you doing? Oh, great. Tell me, tell me about your day. And they talked for hours. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the difference between men and women when we go shopping. I, I, I hate shopping. You know, I hate it. I mean, we'll, we'll go shopping, and, and my mom was the worst. She will shop all day long, buy nothing, and have a great day. That's a wasted life. You know what I mean? You go shopping, you go, you see it, you hunt it, you bag it, you bring it home, and that's it. When we first got married, we'd have this long list of stuff for Christmas. We would go to the mall, and I would say, one store, Sears. That was the big store back then, one store. If what I, had, if what I wanted to get my brother was not at Sears, he got something else that was at Sears. You know, and it's a difference between men who are task-oriented versus relationship-oriented. So when it talks about unbelievably, in, unbelievable intimacy with the Lord for a man in here, you have no idea what it's like. I mean, it's a it's a connecting in the deepest level of our being. Women are more accustomed to that, where we've kept locked up and hidden in stone hearts for so long. It's unbelievable that you'll have an opportunity to to praise and love God like that. And the most amazing thing is everything looks different. Everything. It's like, it's like these blinders come off. You know, you'll have all these problems, and you'll enter into a time of intimacy with the Lord and you'll pray and you'll, you'll talk to him and then he'll talk to you back and then you'll have a conversation and then maybe this word will open up to you. You may find yourself singing a song that only he loves and it's just, it's, it's incredible. And all of a sudden, when that time is over, however long it is, you walk out of your quiet time with the Lord and your situations totally look different. I mean, they haven't changed. I mean, because you only were there an hour, two hours, you know, 15 minutes, whatever it was. They haven't changed, but you have. And you're just overwhelmed with hope and love and peace and, and fruits of the Spirit. Otherwise, we, we just keep rocking on our own way. I mean, I, don't you want something more in your Christian life? Don't you want to have a deeper intimacy with Him, to just have a, just an overall incredible passion with Him. It begins with desire. I can't do it for you. I can't, uh, I can't make it happen. I can't legislate it from the church. I can't say all of a sudden, hey, here's what we're going to be. It has, to, it has to begin organically. It has to begin in, in each one of us. It has to begin with you, not your husband, not your wife, not your kids, just you, and a quiet time with the Lord, searching your soul and saying, Do I really believe it's possible? And if so, I want it. I burn and boil with envy and, and unheld back zeal for it. I want it. We're going, to, um, we're going to close today by having the Lord's Supper. And I'm simply going to ask you that you will make a commitment to sacrifice something for Him. Maybe it's a fast. Actually, that's what I'm asking. I'm asking you to fast this week. You don't have to fast for food. You can fast for, um, for a lot of things. For some, of you, um, for some of you younger guys, how about video games? What an incredible waste of time. You know what I mean? Hours and hours and hours sitting there on video games. You know what? I'm not going to do that one day, two days, three days, five days a week, however, whatever God speaks to you about. I'm not going to do that because I want to spend that time that I'm squandering In devotion to him. That means with all these other boxes I have, my school box, my work box, my family box, I don't have to touch any of those boxes. It's just this box over here that's just eating time away from me. I'm going to take that box and I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to fill that time with something of lasting value. Some of us that are older go, well, I don't play video games. All right, how about television? oh man, I don't understand. Sometimes at night I just want to sit down and, and just, just click through the television hour after hour after hour, watch games or watch races and all that kind of, Why don't you just sacrifice that this week? Why don't you take that hour, three hours or whatever it is. I mean, it really doesn't matter. You can find out who won when it's over with and spend that time in devotion to Him. Just fast that for Him. One day, Five days, a week, whatever God calls you to do. God, it's not that, it's not that watching television is bad. It's not that, that playing video games is necessarily evil. It's just that this is better. And I want to take that time that you've given me, 24 hours a day that's allocated all these different ways. I want to take that section of time and I want to just give it to you. If you don't want to fast food, here's some other ways you can do it. And here's something that I find probably the greatest time waster in our entire culture today. It's Facebook. Amen. Jolly, you know what are you doing? I'm oh, just checking Facebook. Oh, look, somebody bought a new cat. Oh, somebody went out to eat. Oh, I've been me, me, me. Come on. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything. As my care Karen and I were talking about this. When Facebook first came out, the idea was the fact that I could tell you what's going on in my life, and you can tell me what's going on in your. We can keep, keep track of stuff. It's not that way anymore. It's just stupid stuff. You know, it's on and on and on. And people, without knowing it, you spend hours on Facebook. Do people get together? Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. How about you? Great? Conversation stops for about 30 seconds. Each person pulls their phone out. They're not checking emails. You don't get that many emails. It's Facebook. You always tell. You know what I mean? It's, it's crazy. Why don't we just set that aside? Just a day, week. I mean, that's just a section of your life that we could do without and do something better with that faster to spend time with the Lord. And just a small, and there's, there's a million other things you know what they are in your life. You know whether it's the big time waster or the thing that God has been convicting you about. Just, just give it to Him. And so, what I'm asking today is, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm hoping that a change will begin in our lives today. Um, you don't have to make it public. You can just grow closer to Him and let Him grow closer to you, and and it can be. We can begin that process today, and that you will. Ask him, what can I sacrifice for you? What can I do for your glory? What can, I, what can I exchange that is of negligible value for something of incredible value? And then, when the Lord has revealed to you exactly what that is, and you're willing to, to make that change for as long as God tells you to, this is not, you're not accountable to us. So, as long as God tells you to, then I would like you to come up and cement that commitment by taking the Lord's Supper up here. Not going to pass it out. You guys can just come up as families or individually and just partake of it here and say, from this day forward, I want to, you know, I, I want to, I want to fast from food for three days, one day, one meal, whatever it is, begin tomorrow morning or this evening or whatever you want to do. Or if it's something else or an unwholesome relationship or whatever it is. You know, God, I'm... I'm I want to sever that. I want to stop that because I want more of you. And when you've made that decision, just take the first step in deeper intimacy with him. Then come up and cement that by taking the Lord's Supper. And then we'll uh, I'll share one last thing with you when we finish. Can we do that? Let me pray.